song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means this is how wrestling explains the world. And that means I'm Nick Bond, and he is David Gibb. Dave, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? I'm I'm okay. Um, I'm a little disappointed uh, about the Celtics. But oh. other than that... Actually, no. I will tell you what. I had no expectations that they were going to win anything this year. So the fact that Kyrie is out for the playoffs did not disappoint me as much as I thought it was going to. Yeah, nothing like uh, nothing like trading your rising star guards only to have all your guards get injured. <laughs> it's fine. We'll work through it. We have uh, Terry Rozier, and apparently they just have a factory in the Celtics arena somewhere where they make tiny point guards that can shoot three. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, this week's episode uh, is, is Disappointment, um, which I'm actually excited about legitimately because uh we were talking about this before we started recording i was a econ and political science major so i spent a lot of time learning about uh, how people get disappointed and what they do when they're disappointed and how they prevent themselves from being disappointed which is all uh what marginal utility is about like the joy you get from something is only is like hedged constantly in our brains by like how much it's going to disappoint us and i think that uh that fits perfectly with being a wrestling fan, doesn't it? Oh, hell yeah, 100%. I mean, in some part, in some way, wrestling is about uh, setting up fans either intentionally to be disappointed or trying as hard as you can not to disappoint. And I think that's why it's interesting to talk about disappointment in the context of wrestling. And and for those wondering, we do not have an audio clip this week, uh, in part because it's hard to find one, but I was thinking of it. It makes sense to set up an expectation and then have us not meet it, which is that we usually have a clip at the beginning of the episode. This one we don't because it's hard to find a clip that expresses disappointment that you don't have to contextualize so much that it's not worth it. I think disappointment in particular is a fan that, uh, a, an emotion that wrestling fans don't know how to deal with because they've been disappointed even when waiting for the delayed gratification. So like you, and specifically with the WWE, I think of, because WrestleMania is coming up. Um, we're recording this right before WrestleMania. Probably, this will be up the day before WrestleMania. So like WrestleMania is a time every year where people get disappointed by the WWE or when they think it's shitty, very excited. Uh, and I think that's perhaps the crux of the wrestling year is how excited or disappointed we will be by WrestleMania. It's like this weird thing that we all have to, it's almost like a ritual every year is to like deal with the disappointment of what happened at WrestleMania. And uh, you had mentioned uh, Daniel Bryan. You wanted to talk about uh, specifically in this context of the idea of delayed gratification equaling like that release that you're supposed to get at wrestling and he's coming back this year. So I think it's a perfect time to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for that stretch, you know, he got, he got fired for uh, choking Roberts with the tie and then he came back and actually got his, which was, which wasn't itself actually a huge disappointment to fans that they, that they fired him over something that, that some folks in the wrestling business thought was kind of trivial. Uh, but when he came back and had his, you know, first the team, hell no. And then the big singles push after that, I mean, people were really excited for him and really, really believed in him. And the way that he was presented week to week, month to month, really let a lot of those fans down. 
And for some of the fan base, they just continued to kind of get, you know, more and more burned out and lose faith in the WWE. I think it was a time when the WWE turned off a lot of their fans between what they were doing with uh, Daniel Bryan and what they were doing with CM Punk. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know, there were some people who were kind of tailing off and there were other people who maintained the faith and said, this is just delayed gratification. I'm going to deal with this disappointment in the moment because I know they're going to pay it off when he beats Triple H, Batista and Randy Orton all in the same night or whatever it was. Yeah. And I, I think what it becomes is this like staring contest between the fans and the promotion to like D- Dusty Rhodes had to deal with this too. And they literally had to like construct new ways to tell stories to help push the gratification down the road. Like uh, the dusty finish is like the quintessential example of wrestling's obsession with delayed gratification. You you understand that dusty, you've seen more dusty finishes than I have. I think you might be able to explain it better to the, uh, the folks at home. Oh, sure. So the dusty finish is a finish that was used a lot by dusty roads. The idea is that in a title match between a baby face challenger and a heel champion, uh, you have a spot in the match where either, you know, uh, one of them uh, brings the other guy over the top rope intentionally, which is supposed to be a DQ, or you bump the ref, and then a second ref comes down, and they do the finish where the baby face appears to win, and then the first ref stands up and says, oh, no, 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 they pushed me, or I saw them go over the top rope intentionally, and therefore no title chains, it's a DQ. Uh, however, a lot of the time what they would do is they would allow the fans in the arena to think that the title change had happened. And then the kind of dusty finish aspect of it where they would take that title win away would sometimes happen on TV. So it was definitely a device that was designed to really manipulate people's emotions and in a specific way. And it worked really, really well until it didn't. And once it started to be a pattern that people, uh, people anticipated then you're talking about anticipating disappointment and that's when you can really start to scare people away i think vince mcmahon gets one thing about wrestling wrong which is the concept of he thinks it's about building a better mousetrap and i don't think it's about that anymore i think that the mousetrap that they have is very good but i think when people they want some cheese in the mousetrap to like extend the metaphor and i think (laughs) I think what Dusty finish the Dusty finish because you have to like make people aware of the trope without making them aware of the trope and I think your point that they would often have it come back the next week on television was really important but also what's important with that is how they booked like Ric Flair in particular who is the person that is most often right most often involving Dusty it was Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen doing something and him not getting that win that he was supposed to get. But that's just how heel champions are booked and have been throughout history. Like um, I, I posted something about this cause I was working on, I'm working on a kind of uh, statistics for wrestling cause I'm a nerd. And uh, one of the things that came across and, and I tweeted about this was uh, there's just a month where Alexa bliss lost 24 times in a row. Like, She's a great performer. I love Alexa Bliss, but like 24 losses in a row is a lot, but she's champion the entire time. She loses on television. She loses on pay-per-view, but she always loses by like DQ finish or count out or in a tag match where she doesn't take the pin. And what you realize is like people, she exists so that people can see her lose, but because they want to pull 
the that farther along because it's a money-making scheme they have to risk getting to the point where people just don't care anymore and there's very few examples as far as i'm concerned where wrestling has gotten to the payoff at the right time like i I really can't think of anyone other than the daniel bryan story yeah that's really interesting And, and alexa bliss you bring her up is a really interesting illustration of how wrestling has changed in part because of some of the ways that Vince McMahon has tried to restructure the business that you were talking about. I mean, Alexa Bliss is a heel champion. And so, you know, in the old days, if you could go to the house shows and you could make sure the baby face always looked strong and, you know, won by DQ or looked like they had Alexa and then she did something dirty to win, uh, you know, that, that was like how it worked. That usually you saw the heels get beat on the house shows and then they would brag about how, you know, how well they were doing on television. And that was a big part of them getting heat. But now that the babyface heel divide is so broken down and so many of the people who watch Raw are huge fans of Alexa Bliss, it makes it harder to kind of use these legacy booking strategies, you know, because people people think that the babyface and the heel are both babyfaces now. And it takes away some of the classic ways that wrestling used to, you know, manipulate delayed gratification or intentionally disappoint. And what's weird is they kind of almost inverted uh, in some ways, because I I did mention that Alexa lost, but like... Uh, an Alexa is bliss super fan like tweeted at me when I was talking about when I posted that and they were arguing with me about the idea that she that house shows aren't canon unless somebody wins which is not relevant to what I was saying what I was saying was it is interesting how they book uh, heel champions and then I looked up AJ Styles and AJ Styles has not lost a match on a house show in like seven months Wow. He does not lose on – he always wins on house shows. And over the last year and a half, I would say, he lost in October in a fatal four-way U.S. title match. But before that, he had been the U.S. champion the entire time. He won on a house – like, AJ Styles is the quintessential babyface champion you pay to see win a match. Like, you pay to see him win and you pay to see him wrestle. You pay to see Alexa lose. And it's like – one is much more sustainable than the other. People will always pay to watch someone like AJ Styles before. What the disappointment, like that well has become so like dilute, not diluted, like muddied with reality that it becomes the concept of disappointment becomes like a meta fictional narrative for wrestling in a way that is to me like, it's dangerous. Like how much can they punk us or pardon the pun prank us to into like, like what, I guess my question in, in this context, and we can go back to Daniel Bryan in the Daniel Bryan context, what would constitute something they could no longer do with Daniel? Could they not turn him heel? Would that be too disappointing? Would it ruin the Daniel Bryan experience? Would it be disingenuous to Daniel Bryan? Like, how what can what can promotions do at this point in the age of like constant inundation of like also disappointment like how disappointed can you make somebody be in a world like this well a great example that relates to daniel bryan is when they made him daniel wyatt for like three weeks or however long that was if it was that long 
And, you know, there was just a wholesale rejection of that, of like, no, fuck this. This is our guy. He would never join up with these people. That's totally, it's not just that we're disappointed by it. It's that we're outraged with it because it's so incongruous with everything that we know about this guy. And that was an example of where, you know, they tried to use one of the old tropes. They were like, oh, the guy you really love, right? What's the old adage of, you know, the really hot baby face when they turn makes the best heel and the really hot heel makes the best baby face when they turn. So they were trying to, you know, disappoint people in a calculated way by having him join the Wyatt family. And there was the social media outcry. And I think it did. I think that was actually one of those moments where I'm not a ratings expert and I certainly don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do think that was something that hurt their viewership uh, for a couple of weeks when they, you know, tried to say, oh no, Daniel Bryan isn't, you know, yes, yes, yes. He's uh, this guy in a jumpsuit who looks exactly, you know, who's dressed exactly like Aaron, Aaron, uh, Eric stinking Rowan, who's like the you know, arguably perhaps the biggest, one of the biggest jobbers in the company over the last like five to eight years. Uh, the, physically the biggest, because I like Luke Harper actually wins right. and Eric Rowan doesn't. <laughs> no, and I think, I think that there, there's an important distinction between disappointment and outrage at the kind, there's, there are different manifestations of the disappointment I guess I should say. And the worst is a mi- mixture of frustration and apathy. And that is what you get when you like break the logic of professional wrestling in a way that like, and a similar example is uh, when Stone Cold Steve Austin at the end of WrestleMania 17 turned uh, heel by joining with Vince McMahon. They did it in a way that it was just like, oh, okay, well, we don't care now. Like, you made us not care by – it's not just taking making somebody disappointed. It's making somebody disappointed while also making them think about how you're intentionally making them disappointed. And, like, it worked long term, but, like, how far can you push that down? Like, is I, – I, this may be – this is very conspiratorial. So I don't actually mean this in this way. But um, in other words, I don't think for the last three years, Daniel Bryan has been faking a head injury. But my question is, how long are we okay with the idea that the WWE, let's say in theory, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, pretended that Daniel Bryan's head injury was more serious than it actually was. And that they could have cleared him, let's say, a year ago, but wanted, or right after WrestleMania, so it wouldn't have been worth it, but they wanted to build up him for the next WrestleMania. Like, are we okay with that if it helps the story be more believable and exciting? Or would we rather a situation where what they did when they reinstated him, which is they announced it, and the next time he was on television, he got his head kicked in? Well, I think that in the social media age, like, there's a finer line between being able to effectively create disappointment and causing outrage. Uh, I think that's kind of the problem is like they're using a lot of the same pro wrestling techniques, but the time and the medium with which people respond uh, to that disappointment is a little different. When you have, you know, a few disappointed people, if you and your five buddies watch WrestleMania and you were all disappointed by the finish, you know, that's a room of five disappointed people. When you get millions of disappointed people in the same space at the same time, that can create something that's a little harder to control. And I think that's something that the WWE has been struggling with because they so intentionally push social media. I mean, they just did a tournament that was basically social media exclusive. So it's that double-edged sword. Which was 
fantastic, yeah. by the way. It was abs- – I loved it. It was one of the best things they've done in a long time because our mm-hmm. expectations were so low. Oh, they're just doing it on this stupid social media thing. But I, I think what you're saying is extremely important in the idea that, like, they no longer control the actual universe. Mm-hmm. It's not a closed space. It's still, they now, because they rely on social media so much, like the world leaks into and out. It's much more of a, kayfabe is much more of a permeable membrane. So they have to risk, for for instance, and the, the Daniel Bryan thing I brought up specifically because of this, they had to announce they cleared him. Right. They had to. There was no way they could have had him attacked and been like, oh, by the way, we cleared him two days ago. Surprise. Because that ruins the story in a different way. And and to me, I think what what we're largely talking about is this idea of – there's t- two things. One is good and one is bad. One is the idea that please don't force me out of the suspension of disbelief that I have agreed to by watching this stuff. Like I have agreed to suspend my disbelief on some wild shit. Right. Any, anybody, anybody who watches wrestling is inviting the wrestling promoters. Please lie to me. Like we don't expect honesty. That's not part of being a wrestling fan. In fact, honesty, right. It's like that whole thing of like, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Like honesty is definitely not always the best policy in wrestling to, to speak directly to the Daniel Bryan thing. Like if he was, could have hypothetically, you know, if he was hypothetically cleared a few months ago or whatever, and this was the time that made sense, you know, just to build the rest to build WrestleMania or whatever, then like, that's fine by me. Like, yes, tell me a lie. Tell me the most entertaining possible lie. I'm not bothered by that. Like, you know, no. And I think that's an important distinction is that you aren't bothered by them lying. You hate a dumb lie. Like, we don't want Daniel Bryan to be over is a great story. Saying we want him to join the Wyatts because it's a spooky cult is stupid and nobody wants to see it. Like, 100%. And I, I, I think what wrestling has, has started to learn is the distinction between those two things. But the other thing, and this is what I was saying, is that you have this world that they want to be lied to in a way that makes sense. The other thing, and this is something I wanted to spend some time talking about, is that we have as a wrestling culture and it's not just, and I I think it's less so people like us that just kind of write like fun stories about individual things um, or host fun podcasts about individual things involved in wrestling, but like people, the reviewers, the critics, and I don't mean like the critics and the haters. I mean that there is this very like prescriptivist streak amongst wrestling fan, um, wrestling fans and wrestling reviewers in particular this idea that there is a good wrestling and a bad wrestling and only certain types of wrestling are good and only certain types of wrestling are bad and there's like no in between it's either a dumb like the perfect example for me is um the lumberjack match a well done lumberjack match is awesome there have been like two well done lumberjack matches in the history of wrestling but it is not in and of itself a bad concept, but it is treated as such because it's never been properly executed. So what you have is people going, well, this isn't the type of wrestling I like, or this isn't the type of storyline that I've booked for myself because I have an idea of what wrestling should be and how people should be rewarded. I, I think that to me is one of the largest sources of disappointment or like self-inflicted disappointment that's not intentional on the part of the company does that make sense or do you oh, yeah, 100 i mean it's like if you 
you know, if you go to the next Adam Sandler movie, uh, expecting to be entertained and in your mind, all movies with major releases should be Oscar quality cinema, then you're going to be really disappointed by that Adam Sandler movie. You know, uh, no, I a hundred percent agree that, you know, I, I've said this a few times that I was a long time subscriber to the pro wrestling torch. And, um, about a year ago, I actually canceled my subscription, not because I was dissatisfied, but just because I was making some financial adjustments and it was, you know, $10 a month I didn't need to be spending. And there were other podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. But I have found since I stopped listening to the kind of top tier, you know, wrestling journalism and criticism that I enjoy things more. <laughs> and if you listen to those top tier journalists for more than a couple of weeks, it's not hard to imagine what their take on any given thing is going to be. Um, but I do think the way that in the internet age that, you know, uh, Meltzer and Keller and to a lesser degree, Mike Johnson, like all those people are a really important part of the wrestling business on a certain level, you know, keeping promoters honest and reporting on things that actually matter. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, they're tastemakers and they are trying as tastemakers to build a certain kind of orthodoxy and it orthodoxy can be a really dangerous thing. Yeah, I uh, anyone who knows me knows I am the least prescriptivist person on earth. So I cannot fucking prescriptivism basically means that you are trying to articulate the world as like it I guess you believe it should be. Like you're prescribing and descriptivism, which is what I believe in is like this is how I feel in the context of this given these things. Period. Like that's that's how my reviews. And yes, I used when I when I wrote reviews. I wrote I used numerical uh, things the way that like Dave Meltzer does and stuff like that. But the way I use them was my oh, set against my own expectations, which I clearly stated beforehand. And I don't expect everybody to do that, but I feel as though when you're reading a Meltzer review, and these are things that are incredibly important to the wrestling fandom. Like when you go to cagematch.net, which is a compendium of every single match ever, basically. Uh, it's uh, all the match cards. It's, people use it for statistics and stuff like that. They specifically, for the matches, put the Meltzer rating on all of the matches that have a Meltzer rating. Like it is an important thing in the way that Roger Ebert's um, – Kind of, his reviews were important and Siskel and Ebert's reviews were important, but it's dangerous because I'm just going to come out and say, there's a lot more herd mentality and toxic masculinity for lack of a better term that exists in the wrestling world where you are unable to like things that don't fit a certain like narrow bandwidth of what things should be without being ridiculed. about. I have a perfect example of that. And that's, I have over the years been uh, vocal a few times on Twitter that, you know, I wasn't watching week to week TV because I wasn't old enough. But when I go back on the network and watch the pay-per-views, I think the Bill Watts era of WCW put together some of the best pay-per-view cards that WCW ever did. And, you know, everybody always wants to be like, oh, well, he uh, didn't let people jump off the rope and he took away the mats from outside the ring and he fined people for being late and everybody hated working for him, blah, blah, blah. And it's like those factors have nothing to do with my enjoyment of the matches as a consumer. Those are just like beliefs that we have been told mostly through the wrestling press that we should hold. Is it problematic the thing that Bill the things that Bill Watts said, you know, about discrimination? Yes, those things were horrible. But because he was a figure that not everybody liked, there's become this orthodoxy of all Bill Watts' decisions were bad decisions because he's a bad guy. 
And that whole era of WCW isn't worth watching. And it's one of the best stinking eras, roster and match quality-wise. So that's just a little example of what you're talking about, where there's this orthodoxy on social media, and you pop your head up above the parapet. You're just you're just asking for to, to, to hear the same groupthink kind of shot. Yeah, and this head. isn't like, oh, I don't care what people like. It is important. I want to make very clear when we are talking about these things and expectations, no one cares whether or not you like something, right? Right. <laughs> Nobody. Sorry. Because that is the number one response. Oh, you're saying I can't like this. No, like whatever the fuck you want. But except, for instance, when you said, you went through the whole thing and you're like, and you know what's a real problem for me? Bill Watts is kind of a racist. Like a little bit of a racist. So, or has Henry Aaron thought he, he was a racist, I think it's fair to say. Sure. Yeah, like he either said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person or actually did have some discriminatory beliefs either way like that is something you have to accept and contextualize when you're watching him it doesn't make it unwatchable if he had a situation where like every black guy was a heel and a bad person and like a lush and like uh you know you know what i'm saying like that would be different but on the contrary but on the contrary he put over the first kind of nationally televised television recognized black heavyweight champion which might have been him you know uh uh uh, uh what's the what's the line from shakespeare you Lady whatever doth, too much doth protest too much yeah exactly protest too much exactly sorry i was blanking on my shakespeare but you are accepting the context of that you are not then saying this informs all of the other stuff that you don't like. That is an entirely separate concept. You were literally just describing when I watch the Bill Watts era of WCW, I enjoy it more than the other eras. I'm not saying necessarily it is better. I am saying I enjoy it more and I like my criteria for what good wrestling is slightly more than you. So I think it is better than the stuff you like. But you're taking seven or eight steps to get there. You're not just going, that's stupid because uh, there isn't enough of a high work rate, which is this idea that's not a real thing. Like we have constructed in our mind what it means to have a good match. Absolutely. And in doing so. Or I actually, I, can I say, we haven't constructed it. We, meaning the, or the royal you I should use. We, most people who haven't watched hundreds of hours of wrestling have a conception of what a good wrestling match is in their own mind based on what they've been told a good wrestling match is. You know, I definitely think, you know, the wrestling media and to some degree in the last couple of years, sort of the, the social media interactions between fans have made disappointment an even bigger part of the wrestling business because, you know, we're, we're setting expectations. It's crazy. It's like every, you know, I write for the wrestling estate and every, every month we do like a round table uh, before the pay-per-view and, you know, making predictions and stuff like that. And it's like, I, I make predictions because I'm asked to, but at the same time, like I always remember, you know, I don't actually care if these finishes occur. Like some of them I'm more passionate about than others or believe that there's a right way and a wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. But like when you make predictions and want them to come true so bad or when you set up standards for what makes something a good match and you want the match with your favorite guys to achieve those things so bad it's like you're just making it harder on yourself you're making it harder for yourself to like something you're increasing your chances for disappointment with that said i'm not saying like oh you should just sit there and take what's fed to you because i don't mean that either like obviously if something's crap you have every right to call it as crap from your perspective like you were saying but it is definitely true that 
you know, like I said earlier, the wrestling media has done a lot of good for the wrestling business, but this is one way I think it significantly hurt the wrestling business. And that's something that the promoters identified in the eighties when Dave Meltzer first started, you know, uh, doing the wrestling observer. They weren't concerned necessarily that he was breaking kayfabe and telling people that wrestling is fake because everybody knew that wrestling was fake. They were scared that he was going to raise expectations across the board. And that's exactly what he did. And you can't main event Junkyard Dog in 1992 when people have Dave Meltzer expectations. Yeah, and I think there is also some good in that in the way that like film critics are important. They help create, curate to some extent the types of films that uh, are important to watch to understand the future of film and stuff like that. There are actually intrinsically important pieces of art, even if ultimate deletion, which we just had the mini episode about is a significant piece of art in the context of wrestling, mm-hmm. whether or not you liked it is a different question. And I sure. think what people conflate is thing I like and good. Oh. And more importantly, thing I don't like and bad. Mm-hmm. And I I find some agreement in the concept that the things that you like are good. As long as they're not hurting anybody, I'm not going to tell you they suck, right? <laughs> cool. But my problem begins and it always has and it always will when I am told that something I like is bad because you don't like it. Or had expectations that were not the same as my expectations. Because what that does is it creates, like we were talking about earlier with the group think, but it's also a situation where you literally get into bullying and stuff like that. Like, oh, well, you would know that, like, this is good. And it's like, I've watched every single match that WCW has produced, produced in 10 years. I promise you. I know what, like, like, I enjoy in WCW relative to other stuff. I love Scott Norton. Scott Norton is like my favorite wrestler. There is a Scott Norton. I think it's a Scott Norton ice train match from like hog wild or something like that. It is one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite matches of all time, but like, and I will say, and I am fine and I am confident enough in myself that if somebody calls says what's wrong with you, how could you think it? I'm like, I just like the thing I like, but there is this tendency to bully people. Like you said, who raise their head above like, Hey, I like a thing that's not normal. And, what I wonder is, is how do you fix that while also maintaining the idea that this is an art form? Because I think that's what's important is that like Dave Meltzer raised expectations. I didn't want to see Junkyard Dog in the main event in what? 1992. You're Sorry, crazy. dude. For good reason. He wasn't <laughs> good. Like wrestling. And that's not to say that they're like he was actively like disappointing to watch right, so no matter who you are. Yeah. yeah. If your expectation is old junkyard dog, but like junkyard dog in the early eighties was a fantastic performer when he was executing what he wanted to execute and doing so consistently and very powerfully. Like he really hit his mark every single time. He was crazy over for that reason. But there is a difference between that and saying like, there's a difference between saying junkyard dog shouldn't be main eventing in 1992 and he shouldn't have ever main evented. And I think we have way too much of a tendency to say, because this guy was terrible at some point, he can never be better. And if you think he's good, you don't know what you're talking about. It's this like weird, like you end up on a slide and then you're three steps down because you liked one match. Yeah. That's like uh, when uh, Randy Orton and Seth Rollins had that match at the WrestleMania that was in Santa Clara, where they did Mm -hmm. that just amazing finish where he uh, went to give him the curb stomp and he countered out of it into the RKO, or I think that was the finish. 
but that was a tremendous match. And I just remember people at, in fact, I thought that match was kind of, kind of stole that show. Cause if you remember that was like the sting and Hunter show where that was kind of more Gaga than match, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you had the big entrances with the tanks and everything, but like, I thought that that was the best match on the show, but the response online was just like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe they put Randy Borton over, you know, Seth Rollins, who I love. It's that it's just like, I find that, we, we, we are doing this episode in part because it's WrestleMania season, and this is when the time of year for, for fans when those feelings of disappointment can be the worst. And it's just always frustrating to me, like you say, when someone says, well, I don't like Randy Orton, and I think he's been around for too long, and I think he's presented you know, uh, not as well as he could be. You know, therefore, uh, it's this match was bad because he went over Seth Rollins, who's younger and more exciting. And like I said, I thought that that was like, arguably the best bell to bell match on that show that year. And I, you know, and and they had a great, incredible finish. They'd done a spot. They did a spot that I'd never seen done before. And some people still managed to kind of suck the joy out of it by saying, yeah, but Randy Orton won. Yeah. And it's like, they're telling a long form story. You have to, and this gets back to the, the idea of disappointment. They knew that at the end of that show, he was going to beat Roman Reigns, right? So, like, you have to take that thing in the context of the... They even gave you the middle part of that story immediately after. They didn't even make you wait until, like, Monday for it. They were literally like, hey, he lost to a guy that's in his, like, he is feuding with in his group of people, and now he's going to become the golden boy of that group. Like he is going to be the person and now the next real feud is going to be like, once he gets past Roman Reigns is going to be with like Randy Orton. Like it's to set up stuff further down the line. And you can say, well, I'm disappointed in that. Sure. But preemptive disappointment in not liking something means you're not going to give it a chance. Imagine watching star Wars, a new hope and 20 minutes in being like, oh man, I don't like that they killed Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. This movie is heartless. No, you know what I mean? It's like you were saying, you gotta see it through. That like, this is, you know, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru dying is, you know, point number three on the hero's journey kind of thing. Like, you gotta see this stuff through. And, and one thing that Triple H has said in the past, which I think is very incisive, uh, is he said, you know, wrestling is a soap opera that never ends. And you constantly have people jumping on the train and you constantly have people jumping off the train and you need to present things in a way where the people who just jumped on get it, but in a way that the people who've been on the ride are fulfilled. And I think sometimes the issue comes when either the promotion is not doing a great job at that second part or when fan expectations just are either incorrect, are incorrectly calibrated, let's say, or when there's a certain outcome that that people want or feel is quote unquote right, it's like that stuff just muddies the water so fast, and it, it makes it it makes it our expectations make no mistake. Our expectations make it harder for promoters and wrestlers to do their jobs. Does that does that make sense? That like it's it's a way that we as fans have really yeah. impacted things because, like I said, it's this constantly rotating audience and this constantly ongoing story, and you have to present things in a way that works for the new viewers and the old viewers. And so, so it can be that, that is really, really challenging. And when we come to the party, we who have watched every week for the last however many years, like we come with this very huge stack of expectations, the newer viewers expectations, that's a much shorter stack. And it's really hard because they have to promote to those two groups and everything in between. And it's just incredibly hard to do that 
without letting down, I guess, the people who follow week to week for years and years. Like those are the people who are the most susceptible to disappointment because they've seen the big picture. They know that you're presenting point D this week, but you never presented point B. You skipped over it. You know what I mean? So the way wrestling storytelling is designed, it's it, the longstanding fans are going to be the ones who suffer the most disappointment. But as a fan, you kind of have to understand that to some degree and be a little forgiving because I think just recently over the last couple of years, like fans disappointment and vocality, is that a word of their vocalness <laughs> about their disappointment has really made the job of booking wrestling matches and executing them markedly harder in the last couple of years. And it's something that like, for instance, Arn Anderson talked about a bunch with the NWO era WCW, which is that like we were burning through matches, matchups week after week after week. Like we just ran out of people to run up against each other. And people have these, so people then complain about 50 50 booking, the concept of 50 50 booking, or even the idea of people wrestling. For instance, they'll have like Seth Rollins will be in a feud with Finn Balor and they'll have every which different combination to have Finn Balor and Seth Rollins face off. I would rather have that then have Seth Rollins face Finn Balor, then a week later face The Miz, then a week later face... Like, I understand, A, it's probably better for their own safety to be working with the same guys over and over again so they feel comfortable with them and are able to try new things. Like, separately from that, it is just... We have revved the engine on storytelling so much that stuff that used to take six months to go through, like the Mega Power story, which we've talked about previously, that stuff happens in, like... A pay-per-view cycle. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I guess that's that's another way that like fans have, have been conditioned to be disappointed more. Like it used to be that you had some patience in the storytelling that if you were like, geez, I don't really like how Hulk Hogan is uh, clearly, you know, touching Miss Elizabeth's ass when he lifts her <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that he holds her hand during the entrances and stuff. Like you could say, I hate that stuff. That's gross. But you like had the patience to see it through and wait for, you know, Macho Man to get the comeuppance because you knew he would. When they've accelerated the pace of storytelling, it, number one, burns out that patience for the delayed gratification that we as fans had, to, you know, used to have. And number two, it makes it more likely that things are actually going to be unsatisfying because it's like, let's say you baked them or you mixed out the most delicious cake batter in the world. You know, if you bake that cake for five minutes, even if the ingredients were the best, it's not nearly going to be as good as a cake that was baked for 30 minutes, even out of lower quality ingredients. You know, there's something to be said for the role pacing plays in our perception of wrestling. And as that pace has, you know, the foot's really gone to the floor, you know, and that needle just keeps going up, up, up really over the last 20 years. Like maybe it slowed down a little a few years ago, but it's definitely revving back up. You know, and I, I think that acceleration of storytelling is a big part of why people are so frequently disappointed because that long-term story gives you points of gratification along the way. You know, there are small victories along the way, or even if there's, you know, even if the heel gets real heat, when the babyface gets the, gets, you know, the revenge a couple of weeks later, that's way more satisfying than, you know, if, uh, if, if let's say The Miz, he's like a heel who I can think of who's a jerk, right? It's like, I don't know if The Miz stole, uh, man, I think I'm really going old school here. Uh, if The Miz stole uh, Blackjack Mulligan's cowboy hat, let's say, 
you know, that could be like you go around the horn, you know, back in the day and they do matches all throughout the territory and you really make it work for months and months. And like you were saying, yeah, and now it would all be one episode, right? It's like Miz steals the hat in segment one. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan cuts a promo in segment two and they have a match in segment eight or whatever. Like, but that acceleration just doesn't give people as much as many opportunities to have fun and like have a good time. And I don't, I, I, I think we may be coming off as like kids these days. No, wrestling is fucking, as far as I'm concerned, fucking awesome right now. It's as good as it's ever been in terms of like the, just the amount of good to great wrestling. I don't know if the storylines are there the way they used to be, but I think mm-hmm. as a larger art form, it is getting to interesting places that I never imagined it would be. And in terms of like, and this isn't necessarily important to me for anything other than like, it helps me out, but like mainstream acceptance of wrestling has is way higher than it's been at least since the eighties. And I feel like it is much more yeah. legitimate now. It is just considered a thing that people do before they do action movies or comedies. It is, <laughs> It's SNL, but with your shirt off, basically. Like you see John Cena on these the, the press tours, he's just another actor who wrestled instead of doing stand up comedy. Like that's yeah, definitely. Um, in the in the rock and wrestling era, it was like wrestling was acceptable and not skeezy, but it was for kids. Now it's like wrestling is acceptable and not skeezy, and it's 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 for everybody really. Or they try they try to you know pitch such a big tent for everybody, which is awesome. So in other words, and, yeah. and I under I understand why WWE, for instance, when they're producing between five and twenty hours of content, like for the big big weekends of stuff in a, in a week and a half period, basically like between wrestle uh, raw on uh, Monday and uh, SmackDown live on Tuesday, they'll have produced like literally like 15, 18, like 18 hours of content or something crazy like that, including NXT. So I get why they have to burn through stuff. And I think part of a, because of that, because they're actually giving a good show and there are logistical reasons that they would rather not have, but are basically impossible to deal with at this point with given their TV contracts and stuff like that. I think part of it is on us, not us, you and I, I think we have a pretty good hold on our life relative to <laughs> we're fucking up the whole business right yeah, now. Cause like I, I, I very rarely, you know me, I very rarely get disappointed at a wrestling show ever. I like, as long as nobody got hurt, I'm like happy that they, we're able to put on a show and nobody got hurt. Like that is my barometer for like a good show, especially now that it's $10 a month for the WWE. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is with given all that content, it falls to us a little bit as fans to like reduce our expectations. And, and for me, one of the really important things that I think about when I watch is how hard it is to do what they're doing. Like, and I don't mean that in like, obviously the professionals, they practice this all the time, but like, it is hard to be entertaining and on 50 nights a year, every week. You know what I'm saying? Like, I appreciate that some weeks they're going to have an off night and even a match I was really excited for. In other words, I don't, I try to avoid for myself making it feel like the WWE or whatever I'm watching intentionally disappointed me as much as they were trying to tell a story. I may not have liked it. And they try to tell within this context of that story, a smaller story, and they may not have executed as much as they, as well as they wanted to. But I understand that like the next week when they do the video package and Ronda Rousey says, I, I challenge you, it's not at the beginning of the drum roll and not the mm-hmm. end. Like I understand that they're going to fix it in post. 
But I understand that's not for everybody. How do you, because you've mentioned you've become more like, I guess, less disappointed by wrestling. It, was it just not listening to critics and haters and blog boys? Well, first of all, I object to the use of the word hater. It's very reductive and it's just an easy word to throw at people who disagree with you and are good at articulating how they disagree with you. Um, but but no, well, I guess that was part of it was, was starting to to tune down or tune out, you know, some of the, some of the stuff where it was just day to day, here's criticism of yesterday's show. I think that was part of it. And I think part of it was also uh, widening my scope a little bit. Cause I mean, from, from 2011 or so through, through now, I want to say that's my approximation. I've really only been focusing on WWE. And in like the last year and a half, I like really discovered New Japan. And when I started seeing different kinds of wrestling, like truly different kinds of wrestling, like other than the fact that they are both pro wrestling, what's done in New Japan and what's done in WWE have very, very little to do with each other. One's a soap opera, the other one's a sport. Like they're two completely different things. Exactly. And when I started doing that, you know, then I was like, well, I can watch New Japan and they can kind of give me the really sportsy, really tough, you know, they can give me the Minoru Suzuki. That's what I want to freaking see when it comes to match stuff. But then, you know, I also, when I watch those, it's like, man, I really love these post-match promos, but you know, I wish there were more pre-match angles to explain kind of why these two guys, not just because this guy's in LIJ and this guy's in uh, chaos or whatever. Like I, I want a little more to it. So as I've started to watch more non-American, non-WWE wrestling. Because I think it's kind of well known out there that as much as I love wrestling, I'm really not an indie wrestling guy. But but as I've watched New Japan, I've been able to appreciate what the different companies do better. And so like when I want to see spectacle, I watch the WWE. I will not be disappointed by that. Or when I want to see uh, you know, to, to, if I want to see a show where I'm going to get that pay-per-view package, that's going to explain everything these people have ever said to each other in the last three months, then I watch the WWE and that satisfies me in that way. So I guess I've, I, by spreading the love a little bit, I've become less disappointed in the WWE. But now that I see like, well, they and new Japan are doing different things. New Japan is great in their lane. WWE is very effective in their lane. When I stopped looking to WWE to completely satisfy me as a wrestling fan, that's really when I became less disappointed by them. Yeah, if you don't like something on WWE, don't watch it. Watch a thousand other wrestling shows. And that, I think, is the most important thing. And and this week is perfect for it. There is a thousand shows going on. There was a thousand shows earlier this week. This is the week, if you want to get into wrestling, to have checked out some shit. Because I think the most important thing we can say as people who love wrestling, who are making a podcast about how wrestling explains the world is the most important thing you can find in wrestling is the thing that you like in wrestling. And then once you find that, if it's uh brawn panty matches, God bless you, but there's a lot you can watch. Honestly, like there's a lot you can watch. It's disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself, but there's totally, no, I'm not kink shaming. I'm sorry. That's very mean. Um, or if you like lumberjack matches, there's plenty of lumberjack matches to watch. If you like high flying stuff, there's 205 Live. If you have to watch the WWE, but there's a thousand indies that focus completely on high flying stuff. Just find the stuff that you like and really learn it and learn what you like about it and think about why you like it. That would be my best advice to avoid disappointment for something like WrestleMania weekend, which is like some years it kind of is just like, oh, this is kind of shitty. Like none of these <laughs> matches were that great. And some years it's because you have Especially recently. Yeah. In some years you have incredibly high expectations. Like I the 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 year in Dallas, which was I guess two years ago, like the <laughs> Charlotte 
Becky Sasha triple threat was fucking amazing. I had normal expectations going in, but the rest of the card was crap. But like that one match kind of like pulled me through because I had expectations that were high and then it blew them out of the water. And that's like what you watch wrestling for, at least for me, is those moments where my expectations are reasonable and they're just completely exploded. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's why I love watching like even if you don't stay up to date on NXT TV, it's like watch the takeover shows because like – you know what I mean? If you walk into those with no expectations or if you walk into them with high expectations, like either way, those shows are going to they're, – they're going to make you happy. Like they're going to have something that you're going to think is really, really good. And, and to tie back to something you said too, it's like, yeah, uh, one other thing that's kind of helped me limit disappointment is like thinking practically about why the WWE does stuff. And uh, I don't want to co-sign or uh, – or agree that everything that Bruce Prichard says is truthful. But I think one of the great impacts that his, his uh, podcast has kind of had on the wrestling business and the kind of internet Twitter crop of wrestling fans is he does a great job of explaining why stuff that's disappointing to us as fans sometimes needs to happen. And since I started listening to him, whatever it is, like a year and a half ago now, I've really seen some of the stuff that pisses me off or disappoints me through a different lens. Like, why did it have to be this way? And then when I understand that, it's kind of like, okay, so how can you salvage this? Or how can you spin this into something decent? So that's been another thing that's really kind of changed my perspective a little is as more and more folks who, you know, worked on the backside of the business are getting podcasts and breaking into that sphere. It's really helped me kind of understand you know, it's not so easy. I mean, obviously, right? It's not so easy as just putting together a card of the best wrestlers and choosing which ones win. Like, there's so much that goes into it. And when you appreciate that and how much work goes on behind the scenes, then you're like, like you said, it comes back to what you said. It's like, wow, they put on a show with 80,000 people and all the wrestlers busted their ass and nobody got hurt. Like, that is such an achievement. Yeah, having watched just, I have friends that NYWC out here and the work they put in for a show with a couple hundred people. It's not, you know what I'm saying? It's not nothing. But like, imagine doing that and then having 80,000 people and those expectations and still like completing a show is that doesn't screw up at any point really is really incredible and like i think what's interesting about bruce pritchard in particular is he's very good at articulating that like you said that the thing where it's like no we wanted let's say i'm making this up completely because i've never i've listened to him but not like specific episodes of like i've watched i've listened to a lot of interviews Mm -hmm. of him on other podcasts oh sure okay so like his perspective seems to be like i was an agent i worked i produced these are the crazy producing stories i had like you would for somebody in hollywood where it's like oh man we really wanted to get um bill billy bob thornton but we couldn't because he was too busy like wearing a necklace with angelina jolie's blood so we had to get (laughs) this guy and it's like oh shit i didn't realize like how much was involved just getting that thing that i had expectations for and not just like people had to get disappointed because that's a different thing like oh we had to do this because we thought we were going to have uh like a thing later on but like the when casting decisions go wrong because like you said the hard part isn't the deciding who wins it's deciding who wins given the constraints of well we can't have this guy lose to this guy because he thinks he's better than Mm. this guy but this guy doesn't think he's better than anybody but we can't have him lose because he's actually better than everybody (laughs) like or we have we have plans for this guy you know in however many months therefore we need to take care of him now or therefore we can beat him like a drum now and take care of him later yeah and and i i think yeah um this is this is a surprisingly uh 
my expectations were met with this episode. I uh, I liked it a great deal. Did you have any uh, smart wrestling, uh, smarty thinky wrestling podcast? <laughs> totally for. Oh, you know what? Because we did our ultimate deletion minisode, uh, I actually did not pull together another uh, roundup this week. But I just can generally recommend, uh, as I usually do, uh, I can just generally recommend uh, Killing the Town. Uh, just stinking amazing. Just the best insights. Also funny, but without you know trying to be quote unquote entertaining in a way that subverts actual meaningful combina- uh, conversation. So uh, definitely, definitely listen to Killing the Town. That's always my recommendation. <laughs> And I, I also, I actually have a recommendation this week, uh, which is John Cena on the, what's now the ID10T podcast, which used to be the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick. I'm not a Chris Hardwick fan, uh, but John Cena is on the episode and he talks for about an hour about like his process as a wrestler, which when you're talking about somebody who might literally be the best professional wrestler of all like best most accomplished professional wrestler of all time it's really interesting because he he clearly loves the business in a way that makes you endears you to him but also makes you worry for his well-being when he leaves Mm. not that you're like oh my god he's gonna have nothing he has like a he's talking about how much he loves his uh he loves nikki and like how important it is to make her happy and stuff like that so i think he's fulfilling himself with other things but there is this clear love of the business that you don't really attached to someone like John Cena because he seems so like above it all but he clearly grew up wanting to be a wrestler it was clearly a thing for him that provided a safe space which is what it does for a lot of people on it that was really really interesting to listen to John Cena talk for an hour about like his real like the real life hustle loyalty respect thing but like how complicated that actually is and like how much he thinks about what he's doing and how smart he is he's a really like articulate smart dude in a way that i was not expecting because he's a jock like to be honest like i I know jocks i was a jock in high school (laughs) like we were assholes and i was expecting that and i was like no you actually like are an art kid who ended up being in the body of a greek god so (laughs) might as well do something with it but yeah i thought that was really interesting uh so yeah that was it sounds great i will definitely check that out um so we will not be around next week of course because we take two weeks but uh the episode after this episode will be on the Music Man, so um, get excited. What? Yeah, he's a music man. <laughs> uh, so get excited for that, uh, and we will see you when we see you. Pierce. Ever meet a fella by the name of Hill? 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 No. Just a minute. Just a minute. Just a minute. Never heard of any salesman, Hill. Now he doesn't know the territory. Doesn't know the territory. What's a fella's line? Never worries about his line. Never worries about his line. Or a doggone thing. He's just a bang beat bell ringing big hall great go neck or nothing rip roar and every time a bullseye salesman. That Professor Harold Hill. Harold Hill. What's a fella's line? What's his line? He's a fake and he doesn't know the territory. Look. What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? He's a music man. He's a what? He's a what? He's a music man and he sells clarinets to the kids in the town with the big trombones and the. Red-a-tat drums, big brass bass.